Have you ever watched someone do something amazing and then say to yourself, I wish I could do that? I think we've all had some of those desires at some point. I remember as a kid going through an art phase where I really wished I could learn to draw. Did you ever go through that, that drawing phase as a kid? For me, I was really into comics, so I took some of my favorite characters and I started sketching away. But it didn't take long before I looked at my work and I realized it's just not working out. I don't have it. I'm not an artist. I can't really draw. It's not for me. And I've accepted the fact that as much as I wish I could draw, I don't have the raw talent, and I'm not willing to put in all the time and the, the effort drawing circles and apples and hands and stuff like that, learning to, learning to draw. Although I wish I could, it's something I know I will never be able to do. The same goes with playing an instrument. Did you all have a, a music phase as well? I think most of us as kids did. For me, it was drums. In middle school, I had a drum kit, took a few lessons, and I got decent. I was decent. But I knew in my heart of hearts there was an upper limit to my own coordination, especially when using both hands and both feet at the same time. And I knew it wasn't going to pan out in the end. So I would never be excellent at drumming. At the same time, I also still wish I could play piano. And it seems more accessible, like just a matter of practice, lots and lots of practice. But still, I know I'm not going to do it. I'm not, I don't have the time, the, the, the massive amount of time it takes to put in to, to learn to play piano. That, that ship has sailed. It's probably happened to you in some areas as well, from art to music to sports. There are some things we wish we could do, but no, we can't. We're simply left to say, I wish I could do that. For some people, though, realizing they can't do something deeply discourages them. They grow disillusioned between the skill gap between them and the professionals, and they throw in the towel even before they begin. They're just not even going to bother attempting something they know they can't do. And sadly, I think some people apply this to the Christian life. I mean, look at Jesus. He's supposed to be our example, but yet we see him walking on water, changing water to wine, restoring sight to the blind, and we we know we can't do that. We can say, I wish I could do that, but we know we we can't do that. And in addition, he's, he's perfect. He was sinless. He never disobeyed. He overcame every temptation. He walked in perfect obedience and we know we can't do that. I mean, we're not, we're not perfect. And I bet even if you tried really hard, you, you couldn't get through one day without sinning. And the gap between us and the Lord is immense. And, and I think there are some, for this reason, they, they throw in the towel. They're not even going to try and, and walk as Christ walked because it's not attainable. Maybe at best they'll give it 50%, but they're not going to get that serious with this whole holiness thing because it's not like we can be like Jesus. We can't be perfect, so why should I try that hard? But what if I told you you can do everything that Jesus did? Or at least you can do all things that God calls you to do. It may not be God's will for you to walk on water, but what if I told you you could evangelize just like Jesus? Or you could serve others just like Jesus? What if you could overcome temptation just like Jesus? And even walk in obedience just like Jesus. Would you be curious to know how? And today we're going to find out because it's true. Jesus really is our example. The Bible portrays Christ as our example. And it's not a sham. He's presented as an attainable example. We are meant to walk in his steps as if we can in the ways that God calls us to do. And, and today I'm going to show you why that is and, and how you go about it. So here's the deal for those who may be new this week as well. We've been in the Gospel of Mark for many weeks now, many months even, 
And two weeks ago, we encountered this passage that referenced the ascension of Christ. It wasn't the point of the text, so we didn't pay that much attention to it at the time. But the ascension is so significant that we didn't want to just skip over the subject matter entirely. So last week, we came back and we did an entire spin-off sermon on the ascension of Jesus. The ascension has to be the most underrated aspect of Christ's life. We spend all this time paying attention to his, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his return, his reign. But you can't leave the ascension out of that mix. Most Christians are familiar with what the ascension is. Forty days after his resurrection, Jesus led his disciples to the Mount of Olives and they watched as he ascended into heaven before them. This is how the Son of God left the earth. But few have a handle on the vast significance that that event leaves behind, in addition to Christ's subsequent session at the right hand of the Father. And so that's why last last week, last time, we set out to give ten reasons why the ascension is so significant, so that you may grow in your understanding, appreciation, and pursuit of Jesus. Ten reasons why the ascension is so significant. The truths surrounding the ascension really should impact your daily walk. Now, last week we made it through the first four of those ten reasons. And if you weren't here, you've got to go online, go to our website, get that sermon. You can't skip those. They're they're so valuable, so go get those. We don't have any time for recap today, apart from just listing them off. So we covered last week, you know, why is the ascension so significant Well, number one, it marks the end of Christ's humiliation. Number two, it marks the beginning of Christ's heavenly rule. Number three, it marks the end of Christ's earthly ministries. And number four, it marks the beginning of Christ's heavenly ministries. And last week, really, we unpacked those, we drew out their implications, and that's a big deal, that Christ is still working on our behalf in heaven right now. And today, we're returning to pick up from where we left off. But I have decided to slow things down just a little bit. I told you last week that we would finish the remaining six reasons this morning, today. But we've made a little bit of a change. I received so much positive feedback from the message, the study last week, that I've decided to slow it down, give it one extra week. So many people came up to me saying, I've never thought about that, I've never been taught on the ascension, never even realized the impact the ascension should have on our lives. And it's true, I really value a study on the ascension and how it does impact our lives and the life of the church. And because it's so valuable, I think we can afford one extra week on it. So that's what we're going to do. Instead of making this a two-parter, we're going to just draw it out to a three-parter. And after today, you'll understand why and you'll thank me because reasons number five and six, which we'll be covering this morning, they're, they're big. They're big enough to demand their own sermon. We covered some important ground last week. But these next two reasons really hit home as to why the ascension is so significant in our our daily Christian lives. It's really practical stuff. You may remember that while Jesus was on earth, he told his disciples he'd be leaving them. And then he even said, it's actually better. It's better that I go. And the disciples, they never figured that one out at the moment, at least. They they didn't understand, how is it better that Jesus leaves? I mean, I sure would like to have him around. But the answer is that as Jesus goes up, so the Holy Spirit comes down. And that's a big deal. 
The ascension, as we talked about, it's the most undervalued aspect of the life of Christ. Well, along those same lines, the Holy Spirit is the most undervalued member of the Trinity. And the role that the Spirit should play in your day-to-day life has got to be the most undervalued aspect of Christian living. But this may be the most significant impact of the ascension, the sending of the Holy Spirit. So with our time today, we want to give our full attention and really make sure you understand and you appreciate Christ's gift of the Spirit. It's meant to be just this biggest game changer. There's so many Christians, they, they've never studied it. They don't even know much about it. We want to fix that today. This truth is meant to really change your life, and you need to see why. So that being said, all we're doing today is we're resuming this study on these 10 reasons why the ascension is so significant, but we're slowing it down. We're going to focus on reasons 5 and 6 today. You'll see why it's going to take our time. With that being said, we're going to pick up where we left off now with just reason number 5. Let's jump into it. And the fifth reason the ascension is so significant, it marks the sending of the Holy Spirit by Christ to indwell believers. It marks the sending of the Holy Spirit by Christ to indwell believers. And to get started, we've got to do some good old-fashioned Bible study. So grab your Bible and open to John chapter 14. And I really encourage you to do so. Even if you have to grab a pew Bible, open to John chapter 14 in the New Testament. I mean, I could summarize all this. I could speed through it all and just tell you everything. But it's so much more profitable for you to see this truth unfold in Scripture with your own eyes. And the more time you spend studying the Spirit and His role in our life, the better. So John 14, I want you to turn there. John 14 takes us to the scene with Jesus and his disciples in the upper room on the night before his death. It's here where Jesus reveals much about the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit played a huge role in the life and the ministry of Jesus, but he never really taught on it until now, until the night before he died. But here in the upper room, he just unloads on them a lot of significant teaching about the coming and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about his replacement, who will be the Spirit to come. Now, we are not going to be exhaustive, but I want to point out a few key verses here in this upper room discourse, John 14 through 16. But first, look at John 14. Look at verses 16 and 17. He says to them, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not See him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Here we have Jesus giving the promise of another helper, the Holy Spirit. You see, this is very Trinitarian. You have the Son asking the Father to send the Spirit on our behalf. But the focus is on the Spirit. He's given to be our helper. And that word helper in Greek, parakletos, it's referred to or refers to one who's called alongside another to help them. This word is elsewhere translated advocate or intercessor. And if you hear last week, that might ring a bell because we studied how Jesus, right now, in heaven, he's our advocate. He's our intercessor. He's our helper. In fact, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 uses this very same word in reference not to the Spirit, but to Jesus, that he's our heavenly helper right now. Jesus intercedes between us and God in heaven 
to help us. But John 14, Jesus is telling us there's actually there's another helper. And the word for another means another of a same kind. This, this helper is just like Jesus, doing just what Jesus did for us or did for them while he was on earth. And so he's saying there's another advocate interceding between us and God, only this helper resides on earth. In our very hearts, it's the Holy Spirit. Whereas Jesus led, fed, guided, guarded, empowered, and preserved his sheep, so now will the Holy Spirit on his behalf. So this is the promise of an indwelling helper. Of special note, this helper will be with us forever. The Spirit came upon people in the Old Testament, but not permanently. But the gift of the Spirit that Jesus gives now will not be taken away. The Spirit will permanently dwell indwell believers forever, from the inside out. And just, just think of that. If you know Christ, you've placed your faith in Him for the forgiveness of your sins, you've clung to Him as your Savior, then Christ has already given to you God the Spirit to dwell within you, to indwell you. God's abiding presence is with you at all times. Do you ever think about that? Reflect on that. Look down at verse 23. Look at what Jesus promises soon after this. Verse 23 of John 14, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Wow, this is, this is Jesus promising that God the Son and God the Father will come and abide with believers, in believers. That's, that's huge. That God himself will dwell with us. We have to ask, though, okay, but how exactly will God the Father and God the Son, who reside in heaven in that spiritual realm, how exactly will they make their presence known to us? And the answer is through God the Spirit. Through God the Spirit. Through the Spirit, we have a living and active fellowship with the Trinitarian God. The Spirit is our link to the mind of God and to the will of God. He continues, look at verse 26. That these chapters are saturated with teaching on the Holy Spirit, which never came before. He's really unloading on them in this upper room discourse. Chapter 14, look at verse 26. He continues and he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now, as a side note, this verse is really the guarantee of an inspired New Testament, this, this word given to the apostles. But one of the major functions of the Spirit is to, for them to inspire God's word, for us to illumine God's word, to make it known. The Holy Spirit grants us access to the word of God so that we may know God's will, that we may walk in God's will. He opens our eyes to behold wonderful things from God's word. And that's a supernatural thing. Anyone can study the Bible, but only those who have the Spirit can understand and worship the God of the Bible as they read it and know it. In John 16, verse 13, Jesus says similarly, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, 
But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Again, a lot of this applied directly to the twelve apostles. But you have to realize the Spirit, he's still guiding people into all the truth. The Spirit links us to the mind of Christ. And as we tap into that, so we have all the power that we need to do what God calls us to do. We're, we're more than supplied with everything we have and we need through the Spirit within. Turn the page to John 15. Christ continues. He teaches about the vine and the branches, that famous parable at the beginning of chapter 15. At the end of the chapter, he can, comes back to, again, the Spirit. He's giving them more and more bits of information about the Spirit, each time giving us a different facet on the coming ministry and role of the Spirit. Look at 15, verses 26-27. He says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. The Spirit will come, the Spirit will testify in their hearts, and then they will testify to the world. The way I like to explain this is using the illustration of a power drill. You've used it before, you've heard me use it before, but a power drill can do a lot of work. But it can't do any work if it's not plugged into the wall. It becomes rather worthless or ineffective when it's unplugged. It needs power. Where does that power come from? Well, from from the wall. You've got to plug into the electrical socket in the wall. But in reality, the, the electricity is not really coming from the wall. It's not generated in your wall. It comes from a power plant miles away. In between, there are lots of transmission lines, power lines, bringing the power to your house. But with all this in place, all you have to do is take the cord, plug it into the wall, and you have all the power you need to do whatever work you need to do. In a way, this illustrates what the Spirit does for us. God has work for us to do. For example, he wants us to testify of him. Much like the disciples, he still wants us to testify of him. And to do that work requires power. Power we, we don't have. Supernatural power. Therefore, we too need to plug in. And this is where the Spirit comes in. We could liken Christ to the power plant. And the Spirit would be the transmission lines, and the electricity flowing in between. The Spirit brings the full power of God to us, enabling us to do what God calls us to do. This has big implica- implications that we need to unpack. I mean, if you get that, if you, if you get that through the Spirit, we have access to all the power that, God, that we need to do what God calls us to do then it's so important for us to learn, well, how do, we, how do we access that? How do we practically plug into the wall? How do we tap into that, to the Spirit's power? Well, I want you to hold that thought. We're going to come back and really explore that. Because that is, as you can tell, that the, big, the biggest thing to get here. But first, I want us to cover a few more verses before we leave John 14 through 16. Turn the page one more time now to John 16. John 16, verses 5 through 7. Again, this, it's getting closer and closer to his own arrest where he'll be crucified the next day. But he's still with his disciples, still teaching them in the upper room. In John 16, verse 5, he says, But now I am going to him who sent me. 
And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. The disciples here are sorrowful. Why? Well, because Jesus, he just told them, I'm leaving and you can't come. And also, right before this in chapter 16, he told them, and by the way, you're also going to suffer a lot for the sake of my name. It's not the most cheerful news. But there is a silver lining. Jesus, he is leaving them, but he's not leaving them as orphans. He's not leaving them alone. In fact, he tells them it's actually for their benefit that he leaves. Look at verse 7, the next verse. He says, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now that, that's a key verse, which we will also come back and talk about in just a minute. But, but it's like there's an inverse relationship between Christ and the Spirit. He goes up, the Spirit comes down. The sending of the Spirit requires Christ's authority. It can't happen until he ascends to the right hand of the Father, like we talked about last week. It can only happen after the ascension. So if Jesus never ascends, the Spirit never comes. That means we're left powerless. But, thankfully, Jesus did ascend, and he has given to the church the Holy Spirit. The Spirit did come, and I want you to see that now. Let's keep going here. There's more to see in John 16, but for the sake of time, now just just keep turning the page right to Acts chapter 1. It's right after John, and turn over to Acts chapter 1. Now, we're still in Bible study mode, so stick with me. I know we're going through a lot of verses, but again, I want you to see this for yourself. In Acts chapter 1, everything Jesus promised about the Spirit, we see it coming to fulfillment. Acts chapter 1 takes us to right before Jesus ascends. He's risen, he's resurrected, and it's right before he ascends. And he gives a final word to his disciples. And what do you know? His last words to his disciples has to do with the coming of the Spirit. It's that important for them that these are his final words to them. Acts chapter 1, look at verse 3. To these, the twelve, he also, or the eleven at this point, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said you heard of from me. For John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus is reiterating the promise that as he goes up, so the Spirit will come down. They will soon be filled and indwelt by God the Spirit. They'll be fully empowered for Christian life and service. Verse 6, he continues, it says, so that so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, it's interesting, as a side note, how after 40 days of post-resurrection instruction, the disciples, they're still wondering, 
if it's at this point that Christ will restore the kingdom to Israel. And he will. That will happen, but not for some time. First, Jesus is setting up a spiritual kingdom on earth, the church, featuring the apostles as the first witnesses. They will go and testify of him to the whole world by what power? The power of the Spirit. He says the Spirit will come upon you and give you all the power you need to testify of him. Now, right after this, the next three verses, 9 through 11, what happens? The ascension. We covered that. We read that last week. Jesus ascends before them into heaven. After that, what do they do? Well, they go back to Jerusalem. Just like Jesus said, they listen, they go back to Jerusalem, and they wait. And they wait for ten days. And after ten days, then what happens? Well, Jesus promised. He goes up, the Spirit comes down, and that's exactly what happens. Look at Acts chapter 2, now verses 1 through 4. It says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise, like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues of, as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So this is it. This is the disciples. They're being permanently filled and indwelt by the Holy Spirit in this moment. At the time, it came with an outward sign so that they would know something miraculous is taking place, some visible representation of, of the Spirit's power. The Spirit equipped the apostles to work signs and wonders, just like he did with Christ, so as to verify their authority and conform, confirm their testimony. But this event marks the transformation of the disciples. Today, for Christians, you're indwelt with the Spirit at the moment of your salvation. But for them, this transition between the Old and the New Covenants, this was a special sign given to them to mark the special coming of the Spirit. And it, it also marked their transformation. Right here, we witness the disciples go from being lambs to lions. Just take Peter, for example. Think about Peter before this. He pretended he was all bold, but he wasn't. He was weak. He was cowardly. He denied Christ and ran away. He fled, and then he went into hiding. Even after the crucifixion, he goes into hiding. But after this, after the Spirit comes, what's Peter like from here on out? He's totally changed. He's bold. He's fearless. He now really is willing to risk life and limb to suffer and die for Christ, and he will. Immediately after receiving the Spirit, Peter gets to work testifying. And after this, in Acts chapter 2, Peter delivers the first sermon, the first Spirit-inspired sermon. And 3,000 people are saved. Not long after that, in chapter 3, Peter pulls a Jesus. He sees this lame beggar by the temple, and he says, hey, get up and walk. And the man gets up and walks. You see, now the Spirit has empowered them to perform the same signs as Jesus, just like he promised. And Peter, he's preaching, he's working, just like Jesus did, just like he promised. By what power? By the power of of the Holy Spirit, the same power that Christ used in all of his ministry. And that's the change. That's the big difference. The Spirit has come. 
and realize what, what Jesus has done here. By giving the Spirit, the same Spirit to His disciples, Jesus has effectively multiplied Himself. Before, He was one voice. Now He's twelve. Before, He was one worker. Now He's twelve workers, each working by the same Spirit. And as the twelve disciples make new disciples, they too are all given the same Spirit. They're all made witnesses. And so you can see how this Gospel spread like fire across the globe. You read Acts, you see it just spreading like fire. But none of this would have happened apart from the indwelling, empowering work of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit would not have come if Jesus did not ascend. So I trust that you get it at this point. I trust you see now why the ascension is such a big deal. You know, even apart from all the reasons we studied last week, and those were huge, Christ's present heavenly ministry, that, that's huge. But this here alone is enough to make the ascension super significant. The ascension marks the sending of the Holy Spirit by Christ to indwell believers, and that really changes everything for us. The Spirit becomes the power source for the church, and that changes everything. Now, we've done a lot of Bible study this morning, and I'm glad we did. I wanted you to see that with your own eyes and Scripture yourselves. But now we still need to spend just a little bit more time reflecting on what this means for us now and the, the impact of the Spirit's ministry after the ascension. What, what does this practically mean for us today? How is this supposed to impact our, our day-to-day lives? Jesus said earlier, it's better that he leaves. Why? Why is that? Because I don't know about you, I'd love to have Jesus still around, still doing what he does, rocking around the earth, ministering. I mean, I think that would be pretty good. So how is it really better for him to leave and the Spirit to come? We need to flesh out why we need the Spirit. So here's what I want want you to do. I want you to just humor me and and consider this for a second. And to start, consider right now your your sins. Consider all all your sins. Think about your wrong attitudes, your thoughts, your actions, your words. Think about all your troubles in life, your fears, your anxieties. Think about all of your broken relationships, your marriage, your kids, your family, your relatives, your friends. And do you know where that all that comes from? All of the strife and the conflict, the sin and the trouble in your life, do you know where it stems from? It all stems from the flesh. The flesh. What is the flesh? I'm not talking about your skin and bones, your actual body. The flesh, according to the Bible, it's that fallen, unredeemed part of our nature. Now, salvation, if you, have, if you place your faith in Christ, you are redeemed. You're made a new creation, which is also a work of the Holy Spirit. He makes you literally new. You're born again. But even after that, part of us remains unredeemed called the flesh. That's why we await what's called glorification when there's no more flesh. We're fully redeemed and we're made perfect. But right now, even though we're redeemed, we're not perfect. We're still plagued with this fallen flesh. And from that springs all of our evil thoughts and desires and actions and words. It stems from the flesh. We're like new creations incarcerated in unredeemed flesh. And even in, our unre- even in our redeemed lives, the flesh can still cause a lot of trouble. 
It can make problems for us. We're, we're not perfect. We still sin, and so that invites trouble on our, on our lives, doesn't it? From broken relationships to just the effects of sin. So wouldn't it be nice if there were some way to overcome the flesh, to wage war, to battle the flesh, to win, to subdue the flesh? Do you know how? How can you wage war within, with your own self, your own flesh? Well, the answer to that is by the indwelling spirit. Not only is the spirit essential for the initiation of the Christian life, but also for the continuation of the Christian life. Like Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? We know. God must do a work through his spirit to bring you to life, to begin your Christian life. But after that, are you to keep living in the flesh? No. Rather, we are to continue living on in the same spirit. We are to walk by the spirit. And that's it. That's the key to living the Christian life, specifically winning the war within. You must walk by the Spirit. Do you know what that means? Listen to this promise and hold on to this verse, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, where Paul says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And you catch that? It's a, it's a promise. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And that's huge. I trust you know our flesh, our sinful nature, it's wreaked havoc on our own lives. The sin, the hurt, the conflict. Think of all the damage your your own sin has done to your own life. But here you have a way to overcome it. And what is it? Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Now you're going to ask, what does that mean? Well, it means living in submission to the Spirit's internal leading. Walking by the Spirit is the same as being filled with the Spirit, like Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled with the Spirit. The principle there is what you're filled with controls you. So be filled by the Spirit. Be controlled by the Spirit, His leading, His guiding. Now you're going to ask, well, how do I do that? Like Practically, what, what do you do to do that? It's not some super mystical thing. It happens by filling your mind with the mind of Christ. The Spirit works through the Word of Christ, the Word of God. And He ties your mind to God's mind through Scripture. So how do you walk by the Spirit? How are you filled with the Spirit? Well, it's by letting the Word of Christ ritually dwell within you, Colossians 3.16. That's how the Spirit guides you, fills you, and directs your steps. It's actually not that complicated, but most Christians lack this basic knowledge and equipping. See, God, he's already supplied you with all the power you need for life and godliness. You already have it. All you have to do is tap in. You just have to plug in the wall. It's already there. The power's there. The electricity's there. What you need is there. You have to plug in and access it. You have the Spirit, if you know Christ by faith. He's ready to bring God's full power to bear in your life to do all all that God calls you to do. You just need to be filled with the Spirit, directed by the Spirit, 
And you do that by being filled with the Word and directed by the Word. That's how the Spirit links you to God's power. Commune with God through prayer and His Word. And through that, the Spirit will direct you to make you more like Christ. To the degree that you do this, to the degree that you are saturated with God's Word and submitting to God's will, the Spirit will guide, direct, and control you such that you will bear the fruit of the Spirit. But to the degree that you do not do this, that you neglect the Word, you will remain powerless and you'll find sin dominating your life. Which is, by the way, Ephesians 4.30, that's what it looks like to quench the Spirit, to grieve the Spirit. And don't take this for granted. Starting at the ascension, Jesus gave you the greatest gift ever after your own salvation. That's the gift of the Spirit, His Spirit. This is, without exaggeration, the, the chief means to live the Christian life. And so what? Have you been trying to walk the walk by your own effort? You're trying to pursue holiness, you know, be like Christ just by your own strength? It's not going to happen. I mean, are you just relying on your own elbow grease to, to be a better person? Not going to happen. You know, I bet, I, I would, I'd more than bet, I, I would guarantee that the vast majority of your problems in life have a spiritual root. So why are you trying to solve spiritual problems with, with normal means, human means, earthly means? You need a spiritual solution, and that is the Spirit. Literally, every time I talk to Christians and they're struggling with sin and they're losing, or they're suffering and they're despairing, every time I find that they spend little to no time in God's Word. They're not communing with God. They're not fellowshipping with Him through the Word. There's no role of the Word or the Spirit in their life. And so it's, it's no duh. Of course you're struggling because you're not abiding in the vine. You're detached. You're untethered. You're not plugged into the wall. So, of course, you're powerless to overcome your sin. And we're not just talking about reading some pages in the Bible like you would a textbook. We're talking about communing with God through his word, fellowshipping with him, knowing him, crying out to him, really seeking his will, his mind through his revelation. That's why he's given it to us. You can't defeat the flesh with the flesh. You need the Spirit. And God has given you everything you need to sanctify you through the Spirit within and the Word without. So plug in. And do this routinely. Like a faucet gushing under a cup, you need to be continually filled by the Spirit. Don't move out from under the faucet or else you're going to dry up. Walking by the Spirit, it's a present, continual, active thing. It's a daily thing continual thing. It's not a once a month thing. It's not even a once a week at church thing. You don't get your fix Sunday mornings at church. It's meant to be a daily, continual, habitual practice. You are being filled by a spirit through the word. So don't keep putting off. I know some of you, you think in your minds, you just keep putting off forming that routine, the routine of being in the word, communing with God in prayer daily. Don't put it off. Don't grieve the Spirit. Don't unplug. Or else you will be powerless to live as God calls you to live. 
But even this traces back to the ascension. The ascension. It's so significant because reason number five, it marked the giving of the Spirit by Jesus to indwell believers. And that empowers you for all life and godliness. That's huge. Don't take it for granted. And very much related to that, I want to squeeze in one more here. We'll be quick with this last reason for this morning, reason number six. But sixthly, why is the ascension significant? It marks the giving of spiritual gifts by Christ to equip believers. It marks the giving of spiritual gifts by Christ to equip believers. If you want, you can turn to Ephesians 4, you can just listen along. But this is a corollary to the sending of the Spirit to indwell believers. For as the Spirit indwells us, so he also equips us. Now you may have thought spiritual gifts, they're tied to the Holy Spirit. Like I thought the Holy Spirit gives us spiritual gifts. And that's true, but first, they come from Christ in heaven. Ephesians 4 verse 7 says, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. The Bible teaches elsewhere that the church is the body of Christ. We're one body. We're all individual members, but together we comprise one body. The Spirit, in fact, is the one who unites us together into one body. But we're all individuals. Still, each one of us is given a special grace gift by Christ. That's what Ephesians 4, 7 is talking about. We're not talking about natural talent like juggling or drawing. We're talking about a a special spiritual enablement that his power and grace calls you and enables you to do. Each one of us, if you know Christ, you have some spiritual gift. The purpose of these gifts is what? It's to serve the body. It's all the individual members working together to serve the body. And notice, all of these gifts stem from the ascension. Jesus never ascended. There would be no giving of these gifts. Look at verse 8. If you're there in Ephesians 4, or listen along. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also has descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. After Jesus descended to earth, referring to his incarnation, and conquered sin and death, he ascended back to heaven victoriously. And here he's pictured as distributing the the spoils of that victory to, to us. After the ascension, Jesus gives spiritual gifts, through the Holy Spirit to all believers. Now you read this, you might be saying, whoa, okay, but I'm not an apostle or a prophet or an evangelist or a pastor, teacher. And that may be true. You may not have those one of those gifts, but you are, verse 12, if you know Christ, you are a saint. You realize that? You are a saint. And you may have some Catholic baggage. Catholics refer to saints only those who are like super special, super holy. The Bible actually uses the word saint to refer to every single believer. 
Any and every believer is a saint. The word saint just means holy one. And if you're in Christ, you've been made holy. You're a saint. You're a holy one. And so realize, yeah, you may not be a pastor or teacher, but others are. And what are they called to do? In verse 12, to equip you, the saints, for what? For the work of service. That's you. To what end? To the building up of the body of Christ. So if you're following, get the picture of what the church is supposed to be. The church, it's not just a bunch of people coming to a building on Sunday morning, listening to the preacher, putting on a nice smile, and then going back to their real lives. It's not the church. The church instead is all of the saints united by the Spirit, using their spiritual gifts to serve one another and build up one another continually. You may not be a pastor or teacher, but you have some spiritual gifting. And it was given to you by Christ through the Spirit for the work of service to the building up of the body. So are you using it? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 says, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It's not for yourself, for the common good. 1 Peter 4, verse 10 says, As each one, again, each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. There are many types of spiritual gifts. We're not going to get into that now. We're not going to do a a side topic on all the gifts and what they are and whatnot. But it's up to you to discern how God has gifted you and then to get to work. Again, you've, you've already been given the grace and the power that you need, all of the grace and the power that you need to do what God calls you to do, to serve, to build up. The question is, are you being a good steward of that grace and of that power? Are you putting it to use like God calls you to or, or not? How are you serving the body, not just on Sunday mornings, but how are you living a life of serving the body using your spiritual equipping? Are there ways in which you serve others in the body? Or do you just come, you watch, you receive the service of others, but you never really contribute in any way? Don't quench the Spirit and don't squander Christ's gift to you. Renew your efforts to serve the body. Find out what it is, how you've been equipped, and then start serving one another. Covered a lot of ground today, even though we only made it through reasons five and six, why the ascension is so significant. Number five, it marks the sending of the Holy Spirit by Christ to indwell believers. And number six, it marks the giving of spiritual gifts by Christ to equip believers. Last week, our focus was more on Christ and what he does for us now from heaven. And that's huge, but equally huge is what the Holy Spirit does for us now on earth, in our very hearts. And that too is a consequence of the ascension. If Jesus never ascended, and the Spirit's new covenant ministry would never have begun, there, there would be no church. We would not be here. But the Spirit has come, and he indwells, empowers, and equips all believers, for Christian life and for Christian service. As a final thought, I just want you to know 
the same Spirit that was in Jesus, empowering Him for His perfect life. If you know Him and believe in Him, He's in you now. The same Spirit is in you. Yes, Jesus was divine. He was fully God. But during the Incarnation, He lived fundamentally as a man. He veiled His divine attributes. So you wonder, how then did He work wonders? How did He overcome all temptation? How did He walk in perfect obedience? It was by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was baptized by the Spirit at the beginning of his ministry, a special way, empowering him for his special ministry. And realize when the Spirit came upon Jesus, the Spirit contributed nothing to his divine nature, but contributed everything to his human nature, fully empowering him to live the life that God wanted him to live. And the point is, without taking that thought further, the same Spirit is now in you. You've been given the same spirit that enabled Christ to do what he did. And so you don't have to say, I wish I could live like Jesus. You can. If you know him, you have the same spirit. So everything God calls you to do, overcome temptation, walk in obedience, serve the body. You can. You at least can do. You have the power. You can't blame God. You have the power and the grace. But now will you? Will you walk by the spirit daily? that you may do all that God has called you to do. Well, next week we'll come back. We'll finish the study. There are four more reasons you don't want to miss as to why the ascension is so impactful. For now, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven and even the Son at the right hand, we praise your name for sending us the greatest gift. Apart from our own new birth or apart from our own salvation, the gift of the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, himself responsible for our new birth. He's the one who made us alive. But Lord, we thank you for the special gift of the Spirit himself to dwell within. That is, that's the secret. That is the key to living a victorious, God-glorifying Christian life. We cannot do this on our own, by our own strength or in our own power. We cannot resist temptation by the flesh. We cannot live in a world getting more hostile. We can't overcome persecution and endure through the flesh. We need the Spirit. We need your divine empowerment and enablement to live as the way you call us to live. And that includes serving others. I pray you convict us of our need to serve one another, to build up the body, not just to come Sunday morning, listen to a little sermon, then check out and live our normal lives. We're called to be together, and that's going to be all the more important as, as the world goes on even as our own nation continues on turning against you, Lord, we need to be knit together, strong as one, to endure whatever comes. And even that will only come by the Holy Spirit. Thank you for what we've learned this morning. I pray we take it, apply it, live it out. All for your sake, all for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.